I'm K.S. Garner, and you're listening to the Solo Network Podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with the creator and writer of the comic series Robo, Jesse Kepler, here to promote his upcoming fourth issue currently on Kickstarter. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I was really flattered that you reached out. Well, thank you for responding and joining us for today. But uh, outside my introduction, who is Jesse Kepler and what are you about? Uh, so I am a, um, a tech worker for most of my adult life. I've been working at internet companies and software companies for most of that time. Uh, but I've been a comic book fan for pretty much my whole life, at least as long as I could read. Um, and I dabbled in creating comic strips and, and comic books when I was a kid at the, you know, at the table with my parents. And um, sometime in 2020, I decided that it, it was high time that I stopped waiting for someone to ask me to create comics and that I would do it for myself. Um, so I'm an independent creator. I'm a self-publisher and uh, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I'm not a big name yet. Or maybe I never will be, but uh, as long as I keep having fun, then I think I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, as long as you're enjoying it, that, that's really good. Um, and you mentioned being a tech worker, and I was wondering what inspired him to create a series like this. And I'm guessing your, your I guess your full-time nine-to-five kind of wandered into your, to your art. So um, we'll, I guess we'll get into that. But what is the comic series Robo about? Sure. So uh, Robo is one of those comics that I mentioned that I created when I was a little kid. Um, it's a, I, it was originally a, an excuse for me to draw robots fighting each other. <laughs> but now that I'm an adult, I have a lot of different perspectives and, and different things that I want to say. And so Robo itself is a comic book about um, the way that either society on the outside or our work in, um, influences what other people think of who we are versus what we think of who we are. That's the main message. Um, and it's also about runaway technology or runaway capitalism or these things that kind of afflict our society that create those circumstances. And so the main character is, uh, he's the man who operates the robot armor, which is owned by the corporation that he works for. He thinks he's supposed to be a hero and his employer thinks that he's a PR tool meant to sell their products. Uh, I was when I was reading them and I and I read that part of him being a promotional tool to sell the products. I guess using the armor and seeing uh, uh, prospective buyers see it being used, and then it would draw more attention to it, which I understand. But I kept mm -hmm. thinking about like the like the Marvel movies and seeing the superheroes, particularly Iron Man, fight the villains in the city. And just as like a, a citizen, I'm like, that's kind of the, like the opposite. I like, understand he's a hero, but it's like they're actually causing more destruction to the city than uh, the than the villains do. And then there was a part in um, issue one that I read that kind of reminded me of that, even though uh, the main character, the main protagonist didn't mean the cause that he actually wanted to save everybody else, but then it it from what actually happened to what was reported is completely different so yeah. that's what i immediately thought of like he actually wants to be the hero but then he's being used just as a as a as another pawn for exactly yeah i'm really glad you picked up on that um when they uh when the christopher nolan batman movies were coming out uh, a friend of mine was watching them with me and 
I was explaining to her like, oh yeah, Batman doesn't kill people. And she says, well, he just killed like 30 people in that last scene. Like that truck ran into a building. It's like nobody got killed. And I am totally down for those kinds of interpretations. I think um, in comics, we like to look at the, the exciting parts. And uh, I like to be a downer sometimes and talk about how it's, it's not all, all awesome when the guy smashes through a building like a lot of people get hurt. So yeah, that's exactly what I was going for in some of those scenes um, to show that the collateral damage is there. And um, in the comic, the world of the comic, Robo, uh, people in that society have been trained to not think about collateral damage. They think, I mean, they think about collateral damage if it, ex if it affects the corporation that they work for, but otherwise that's other people, we don't worry about them. And that's, that's the scene that you picked up on uh, from Robo number one. So, Mentioning issue number one, uh, what are, I guess, issues one through three, if you want to give like a brief description of what is going on in those first three issues, if th for those who haven't read them yet, and yeah. then what readers should expect in issue four? Okay, uh, so you can get all four issues through the Kickstarter. So if you haven't caught up, uh, I'll try to give a spoiler-free um, description, but so rubber number one is, uh, is an introduction um, to Charles Senton, the main character who operates Robo, uh, and Sunburst, that's the company that he works for. And <clears throat> uh, the first couple of pages, I tried to just introduce the character in a real quick, like, here's the character, here's the world, but in a way that wasn't just a recap. So he does an interview, he gets pulled away um, to do some, some mission work. Uh, and he discovers something that he didn't expect to find in the lower parts of the city, New Chicago, where the story takes place. Um, and uh, as I said, I like to be a downer. He doesn't exactly save the day. Um, at the end of the issue, which leads into the second issue, uh, we see that Charles going out on his own because he's a very impulsive character gets him in some trouble with his boss, which is not usually something that happens to superheroes. And so the second issue is about making up for his screw-ups at work and uh, talks about some of the guilt that he feels because of his desire to be a hero. Mm -hmm. um, and then confronts some of the problems with the technology that that company is creating and how not taking the proper care or not addressing um, the problems that might arise can come back to bite them. And uh, sorry, I should hold that one up. I've got it here too. And then the third issue, um, after the events of the second issue leave him unable to be Robo for a period of time, Charles goes out on the town with uh, a friend of his that he knows from his personal life, gets drunk, has a good time, talks about his woes, um, and then we find out about some of the corporate espionage that happens in this world um, because corporations have replaced governments. There's no such thing as things that are illegal. Mm -hmm. So there are freelancers who try to find out and they, the only repercussion is if they get caught. So um, that issue is, is a fun one for me because uh, not only is it the first issue where I work with Renzo Podesta, the current artist on Robo, um, and also my sister did the art for the cover, 
it shows a lot more of what's going on beneath the superhero aspect of the comic. And uh, we get a peek into some of the really scary stuff that's going on beneath the radar. Um, things like, <clears throat> excuse me, things like protests, things like experiments gone wrong, um, people hacking on technology without uh, a lot of oversight, those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I was interested in the two uh, backstories, uh, particularly the, um, uh, the third one is not really backstory, but um, it's more of what happens afterwards. And then it's the second one that I was interested in when, uh, I guess when, I don't want, I don't want to spoil it. Um, Are you talking about the when, last four pages, the, the backup story? Yeah, the backup story where um, life is not what it was the day before. So now it's been days later and now people are like trying to figure out how they're going to survive who work for the corporation when I guess their means to, to survive isn't there anymore. At least right. I don't know for how long it's going to be gone. Um, so that was interesting to, to see that part, I guess the stuff that's happening underneath and how that person is going to survive. And the other people who um, work for, what is it, the uh, uh, Sunburst, Sunburst as well. <clears throat> um, so the two things that hit me up front, particularly about Charles, is how do they pick Charles and um, why did he get pulled away? So are, are those going to be? <laughs> I can't answer either of those right now. Um, I can tell you that I revealed that slowly over time, partially because I didn't write it at the time. <laughs> I didn't know how. Um, why he gets pulled away will be answered, I think, in Robo number five. By the time that one is over, I think you will understand kind of all of the various things that set up that event and why they picked Charles. I probably won't directly address in this story arc. It will probably be something that comes up later, but it is hinted at in uh, four and five. Okay. Um could you elaborate a little bit more on your creative process on Robo? So just being a thought in your head to publishing it. So like, I guess yeah. from your thought in your head to just publishing, just writing out um, issue number one and then publishing it and then going from there. Oh yeah, let's, let's start with the process <laughs> for issue number one because it was a mess. <laughs> um, so, but like I said, I, I was sitting around and I was like, you know what, I should just do this. Nobody's ever going to just come to me and say, you should write a comic book with me. Uh, even an individual creator, like I, I'm going to have to start this process on my own if I want to. And I think I started, I was like, I, I think I'll start with something that I already know. That way I don't have to like start from scratch. So I came up with my old comics. Um, and I did the original Robo when I was 11, which is pretty young. And even then, one of the core things that was left was that he worked for a company, which, uh, you know, I pat my 11-year-old self on the back for that one. That's, uh, that's some pretty dystopian stuff for an 11-year-old. <laughs> so uh, I started from there, and I think I wrote about four paragraphs of what I thought that could mean. Like, just that there's a superhero, he works for a company, 
um, what does that really look like? And so I kind of came up with that idea that he doesn't really have the agency that a normal superhero would have. Um, I was unemployed at the time. I had burned out of my job. And so I probably put a lot of that into it as well. Um, and that's where it started. Uh, and then uh, the first Rebel One script is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat this at all. I've already said it. it was a complete mess. It was just almost stream of consciousness, like paragraphs, not really a lot of dialogue. Every once in a while, I'd write a back and forth scene with no characters named. Um, and this and was I got older to, than 11. So yeah, this is, this is a 40 year old at that point. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I got to the end and I was like, I'm done. I, I wrote a comic book script. And luckily I decided I was going to write three issues before I started even looking for an artist. And in the time between writing the first one and the second one, I came across um, Jim Zub's videos on YouTube about his comic writing process. He's a writer for Conan. He's a big indie comics guy. Uh, really respect the content that he puts out. And thank goodness he does. I got to see some of his scripts and see some of his process. And I was like, oh God, this is way better than what I have just done. I need to go back and fix what it, what it, what it looks like. So um, the process that I use now, which is much more advanced, is I go from uh, ideas, as you said, I kind of just jot down everything that seems interesting. And so I've got, um, I've got one document that's ideas about the series, and it's just, you know, maybe he meets an alien. That's not in there, but, you know, maybe there's a, a piece of technology that, that solves such and such disease. And then I kind of riff off of that a little bit. And then as it progresses, I'll try to weave those into a piece of the actual story. So um, I'll say, like, I want to focus on Charles's guilt, and I will write about um, things that might come up to him in that uh, introspection. And then when I get started trying to work on an issue, I will try to stick as many of those together and sort them out, create an outline of pages. Uh, so I just put one to 20 and I take all the ideas that are down for the issue and I fit those into pages and page turn beats. Um, try to make sure that action sequences are on even numbered pages so that when you turn the page, you know, it pops out at you. Excuse me. Um, and then I work, I, I set in at the actual script. So I write panels and dialogue, um, get that as refined as I can. I try to make sure it makes sense. I try to make sure that my panels don't have more than one action. Um, Renzo, if you ever listen to this, I do try. I know you don't see it. <laughs> um, and then uh, once, I, once I've got it in the state that I feel like is pretty good, I have a friend or two read over it and let me know that it makes sense. And usually they fix some dialogue or they tell me like a certain panel didn't really make sense to them. Clean that up and send it over to Renzo. Um, he works on layouts and uh, I, I approve and give notes of the layouts. And then he does pencils. I have another look at those. Um, inks will come in. I usually don't have any notes for inks because by that point I've looked at them several times. And then uh, I do the lettering, mm -hmm. which is another opportunity for me to fix the dialogue. <laughs>
Uh, in robo number one, I had a different letterer and you probably did see like some of the balloons are awfully big for their frame, uh, for the panel that they're in, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't have to be as good of a writer because I do the lettering. So I get to, uh, to fix those things when I get to see the art afterwards. We'll, we'll get into that in a second, but um, so is that a thing where you put the action, action scenes on even pages? Is that a, like an industry thing or is it something that you was like, oh, this fits my comic. So it's better if I write out the action scenes on um, even number of pages, just so the reader can have that where when they turn the page, they see it right there. I think that's a that's a definitely an industry thing. Um, I see it a lot. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I see it a lot in like Brian K. Vaughn's work, where almost any comic book written by Vaughn starts with a full page splash on page one because you open the book. That's the first thing you see. It's the only piece of art, and then second page is usually an explanation of what you saw in that shocker page. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's a part of uh, using the medium. Uh, comic books is different from film or from novels because that page turn moment can reveal a whole lot of information and it can give you those cliffhangers every few seconds. So it's something I noticed. I started doing it on my own, but I've definitely seen it in more professional creators talks or essays about writing that page beats are important and knowing you know where your acts end and and all of those things that you can do with the medium are ways to improve yourself and i love drilling down on stuff like that um you say i guess when you first started robot there was some issues particularly with issue number one it's just i guess flushing everything out when you first start a story it's so difficult to know where to start like you have all these ideas in your head but you don't mm -hmm. know where to put them and you don't know how to start like you know the middle part of it it's just getting that to that point especially at the beginning and you might even have the ending in your mind but you have to know how to get there so that's right. part of you know the writing process and also world building so with this world how did how did you put it together like especially with something that's tech based like this so how was it with world building robo um, I mentioned like started with the three paragraphs or four paragraphs just mm -hmm. in a text file. That was kind of the start of the world building. Um, I think I went from, I want to do a superhero who is employed by a company and I just, you know, injected a bunch of my, my burnouts about work feelings into that part. But, um, I wanted to look at some of the things that I see as, um, issues with our world as well, but I didn't want to be too heavy handed. And hopefully I've achieved that at least somewhat. Um, so I wanted to do, I wanted to do world building um, in the background. I didn't want to just do like, here's a source book and this is the way things are. Uh, I wanted people to discover it as they were reading. And that's, that's something that I try really hard to keep up without doing too much exposition. Um, but as far as creating the world, um, I think one of the biggest things that got me pushed in the direction there was um, they're called brain giggers. And we talked about the four page backup story. It's about mm -hmm. those people. Um, for the people who aren't familiar, 
brain giggers are people who live in New Chicago or wherever that have an implant in their brain that allows them to sell processing time on their human brain to the company. So they, like a Uber driver, will get a, you know, a ping saying, here's a job. And then their conscious brain turns off the hardware of their actual meat brain runs the program, shoots the answer out to the, to the computer that gave them the job and then turns their consciousness back on. Um, and I had to think about like, in what kind of world would anyone agree to that? <laughs> because it seems awful to me. And so that fueled some of the darkness and, and the twistedness of that world. Um, and then of course, if it was all darkness and just hellscape, I don't think people would put up with that. So I also had to create a way that um, the citizens of that world would largely think this is fine because mm -hmm. that's, what we, that's what we do as humans is if it's really intolerable for everybody, something changes. So I had to find that slice in the middle where there could be this sort of upper class that's doing okay. And then all these poor people who live underneath that get screwed over. Uh -huh. Well, as a part-time delivery driver, I can attest to, my brain does cut off for like 15 minutes. <laughs> I'm trying to get to the place and everything else around me. I mean, I try to pay attention to pedestrians and, and, and traffic signals and stuff like that, but it does kind of cut off after yeah. a while. And I mean, I am selling my time. So um, that part I can relate to a little bit. And I liked how in the beginning, before the, um, I guess before the first panel, before the story starts for each, for each issue, there's a little bit of a backstory um, of everything right there in the beginning so that you don't really have to worry about info dump anywhere in the, I should say throughout the issue, um, which I really liked. And um, you're kind of just thrown into New Chicago and Sunburst in, what is it, NCCRA uh, as is. You know, yep. you're not seeing it. You, you're not told of how life was before. And it's just kind of, you're just thrown into what it is now, which mm -hmm. I really liked as well. I just wanted to point that out. Thank you. Um, but um, I know you mentioned Rizzo, Renzo as your current uh, illustrator and layout artist. Um, but how has your experience been searching for collaborators? Like, how did you find your current illustrator Renzo and how did like how did you know that he was right for this job uh it was a process and I think I I think I got pretty lucky um I have a little bit of experience I mean I'm I, in my day job I will do job interviews here and there so I kind of know the process of hiring somebody but I wouldn't say it's one of my big skills um early on in the process I found the subreddit called comic book collabs um, which is a pretty active subreddit of small creators trying to advertise either to find work or to find people to work with. Some people look for free, some people look for paid, but it gets a decent amount of traffic, not a huge amount. Um, I scoped that out. I marked down a couple of artists that came through there that I liked, but um, ultimately they, they have a guide on their subreddit on how to, to make a looking for talent post. So. I actually followed the guide. A lot of people don't. <laughs> I feel like that really benefited me. And I said, um, you know, I'm looking for an artist for a 20 page black and white comic. I'm going to self publish it. 
I'm going to pay. So no worries about like the artist getting paid. And I think that's a, that's an important guarantee for a lot of these people who are trying to do it as their job. Mm. Um, and this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody who can do technology. I'm looking for somebody who can work in black and white. Um, in some of the, the stuff that I put out, I've unfortunately had to specify, like you need to be able to speak English because I don't speak any other languages. Um, but you put those things down, you're upfront about what you want. And I got 40 submissions, I think on the first one, uh, which mm -hmm. was a lot. Uh, yeah. I spent a good two weeks going through portfolios. I narrowed it down to about five people. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry. One of the other things is you've asked them to give you your, their page rate. I, I want to know what they would like to be paid, obviously. Uh, I was going to fund it myself, but my budget is not enormous. So, unfortunately, like there's a lot of people out there who have amazing artwork who are looking for work, but I didn't know if I was going to be able to sustain that pay, those, some of those higher page rates. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the first one I, I narrowed down to about three people and went through my sister, went through all my friends. I was like, here's the three portfolios, please have a look. And kind of consensus came up from everybody that Phil was uh, one of the best, if not the best choice out of that group. So Phil and I got together and that's, that's how that happened. Um, I did basically the same thing for Renzo, except I also used Twitter and Facebook to find people. Um, I think I got... I think I got maybe 50 submissions by email, which was the only method that I asked people to submit. And I got quite a few via Facebook messages and Twitter DMs that I didn't ask them to submit that way. And so unfortunately I had to tell them, I cannot accept this submission because I didn't see it because I wasn't looking for it. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, there are a lot of people out there who are looking to do work. There are a lot of incredibly talented people out there. Uh, the second artist search was actually even harder because I got so many people who had really amazing work that I kind of wanted to work with like four of them. Uh -huh. I went with Renzo because he had so much variety in his portfolio that I figured he was going to be able to do any style that we decided on. And I feel like I got quite lucky to work with him. Um, a friend of mine from the indie community knew him and he was like, you should get that guy. He's really good. Well, the art style kind of changes a bit between from issues one and two to three mm -hmm. and I'm on four now because Renzo's on this one. So I have two questions. Why black and white? And if you can discuss, if you feel comfortable, why, did, why is Phil not on uh, issues three and four? Uh, Phil got some other work mm -hmm. that uh, I think was just a better fit for him. Um, that's that's pretty much how it was. I had a big gap between one and two and three because I was looking to make sure that the Kickstarters were going to work out. I wasn't as confident, and at the time I wasn't working, so I kind of needed to get that money before I could do the next one. So in that time, Phil had some other work, and I'm glad for him. I liked working with him. Um, the art style changed because I'm not going to ask anybody to emulate somebody else's artwork. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think Renzo's talent is his talent. And, and I wanted to work 
with him on an art style that he was comfortable with. Um, as for black and white, I love black and white comics. I've got a bunch of them here on the shelf. And so for me, that's, that's, like, a, that's like an indie comics thing is you, you do black and white. I've got Cerebus and Walking Dead and uh, I've got this old Aliens comic. I've got a bunch of black and white stuff over here that I love. I know it's not for everybody and I am considering color for the future, but the other thing is it's cheaper. It's cheaper to print, it's cheaper to produce. So if you're starting out and you don't know if you're gonna be a success or not, it's a way to kind of hedge your bets. If I had say $5,000 to invest in a comic book, I can do more pages in black and white than I can do in color. I may have only been able to do one and a half issues. Uh-huh. Well, that's why I kind of figured, I was like, oh, it must be cheaper if they do in black and white. <laughs> well, I, as, as I was reading it, the first two issues, it's, it's very detailed, Phil is, is very detailed in his work, but other than when he breaks up the panels, it was a little hard to read for me for my eye to kind of break up everything if it wasn't broken apart. But again, I really, really did like the details. And I think that may work for some people because then you have to like, it forces you to kind of really pay attention. Yeah. Then in issue three with when we switched to Renzo, I like the pointillism. I like um, the little bit of the grayscale that he adds in there um, that sometimes the, I don't know what it's called, but like people's faces are blacked out at like half of it. To, mm -hmm. uh, to add more to the the tone of it I kind of like that too so yeah I mean again I, I guess it's because it's in black and white and something I'm not used to whereas it's a preference for for you and your readers seem to like it so you're on to issue four so we can't be that bad oh, but yeah I, I I do I do like both Phil and Renzo style yeah yeah uh definitely I think Phil had worked more with having his work colored and so okay. that was that was more familiar to him. His detail is super high. He knew it was going to be black and white, and we talked about it a lot, and he was fine with that. Um, Renzo has been doing comics for a really long time. Um, he has, I think, I think it's like twelve different titles under his belt, something like that, mm -hmm. um, including his own personal projects in color, in black and white. So. I talked with him about it up front and I said, listen, it's, it's probably going to be in black and white like forever. So when we're working on your style, can you work with that? And he said, yeah, no problem. Mm -hmm. That said, now I'm kind of thinking about asking him to go back and color a bunch of it. So <laughs> well, I'm, I'm guessing, cause I've seen other people do their comics in uh, uh, black and white, not the whole comic, but like some of it, some of the panels are in black and white and they kind of mm -hmm. just have it like on a grayscale. So yeah. maybe something like that, because I think the, the black and white, if that's your preference, if that's what you like, I think that's fine. It can work, but adding a little bit, because Renzo does that when he does the dots, when he does the pointillism, he does mm -hmm. add in the grayscale a bit. And I think that that works. Maybe just a little bit more of it will help out. So, yeah. um, but I will say um, in issue one, especially when you talked about how people are renting out their process time, the processing time with their brains from the implant. Um, I didn't realize that, that that was what was happening at the time with the uh, brain giggers, 
but there's a one panel where um, I don't want to say his name. I don't want to give away too much, but I guess the information or something is being sent out to 30 plus people yeah. and Phil puts like, I don't know. I don't know if it's actually 30 plus people on there, but you can see it's multiple people all at one time. You know, you could have just said out to 34 people, which you kind of do, but then to see it in the back and then their faces and then the expression on their faces, I was like, oh, this their information is being pinged out to them. They're receiving the information. And I really liked that. I really, really liked that panel. I was like, oh, this is really nice. You get to see what's actually happening while it's being told you at the same time, which was really nice. Yeah, I like that page a lot too. Um, I can't even remember if I asked him to do that or if he came up with that on his own. I remember the day that he was drawing them because we would uh, we'd hop on Discord and sometimes chat while he was drawing. And so he let me watch his screen. And I was like, wow, I like these faces. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to put, he's, he was working digitally. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to put this panel here. And I was like, no, you're covering up that dude. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was super fun. Um, and I really liked the visual. I liked also, it reminded me of like the 1980s Marvel covers that would just have all the superheroes faces. Mm -hmm. Not really probably something that anybody else would feel from that page, but I was just like, yeah, comics. Like it's just got lots of faces and little boxes. <laughs> okay, so um, we'll switch gears a little bit from artist to, I guess, owner in a way. So how did you to how did you develop Moose Cat Comics? Is, is it something that you always want to do, like have a comics brand, or is it something that you just thought of doing after writing and creating comics for such a long period of time? So um, it is basically a necessity in order to upload to Comixology, which I actually haven't done now, but you need to have a, a name for the company or the publisher and you can put whatever. So that's, that's where I started from. Uh, I would like to eventually do other comics. We'll see how good I can get about putting out issues of Robo or, you know, when I find the stopping point, then I would do other stuff and I don't want to have to launch a new whole brand around mm -hmm. the next title. So that will be a benefit. Um, you can see Moose here in the background. She's in her basket. She basically runs the house anyway, so she might as well have her name on the comics. Uh, it's nice. Uh, but that's, that's really basket. it. Yeah, she's got a basket. And there's another bed over there. Like I said, she runs the house. <laughs> yeah, we're looking to get one for our cat too. She just lays wherever she wants to. She, she'll probably continue to do that, but he wanted to give her something that was hers. Uh, but um, what advice would you offer to other artists you wish someone would have told you when you first started? Um, okay. So the piece of advice that gets thrown around a lot is to start small. And uh, a lot of people will tell you, like, write a four-page comic, write an eight-page comic. At most, maybe do one issue. Don't don't do like an ongoing series or a full graphic novel. I totally did the opposite of all of that advice. Um, I think that is good advice. I think that starting small is a great way, not only to test the waters, but to get a handle for like how to actually write comics. So that thing that I talked about with the, the Rebel One script, it was a disaster. If I had gone forth with that and then, you know, hired Phil and sent him that, he'd probably been like, listen, this is going to work out. I can't work <laughs> with this. 
Um, so I think getting that practice is a good thing. Again, I got lucky that I was funding it myself and that I happened to clean it up and, and get my legs under me before I got too far into it. Um, so starting small is definitely something that can help you. A lot of the creators that I know in the indie community are also pretty young. Um, I have been writing mostly for myself for 30 years. Um, so I, I at least have some of that behind me. I haven't been writing comic scripts for that long, not even close, but um, starting small will give you an advantage in those things. Um, but on the other side of things, if you have a good idea, you don't have to start small. You can go right at it, but it's important to do your research. Mm -hmm. And I think that was another reason that I was able to be successful while ignoring all of the good advice is that, uh, I mean, I was unemployed, it was the pandemic, uh, and I did a ton of research into like printing costs and, and I watched tons of people's videos on making their independent comics and stuff like that. So I was able to find out, you know, what might be expected. I knew what page rates were. I knew, uh, you know, that it generally takes an artist a full day for every page. So I didn't come in with like crazy ideas about how fast it would get done. And I didn't like get into arguments about how much it would cost because I kind of had some knowledge of what was going to happen. So my advice, start small, unless you're really sure of yourself or willing to take the hit on mistakes do your research as much as you can. Yeah, well, doing your research helps. And then it kind of sounds like you just went for it in a way, which I think when people, they, they do your research, which is good, but then they, uh, I guess, do too much or they think too much about the research and what everyone else is doing in a way, which kind of prevents them from starting and the hardest part of starting. So it's just right. kind of, you have to just, go for it in a way right. like yeah do your research so you know what you're getting into but you kind of just have to start and go for it and then you just learn from it yeah and you just described jesse ages 13 to 40 <laughs> is not doing it all that time so yeah or another great piece of advice actually do it <laughs> uh -huh. but uh my last question for you jesse is what is your idea of success so i asked it because as creators if we're not getting regular paychecks from a full-time job or making consistent revenue from our art, we're considered failures or we consider ourselves failures. So many of us will put our dreams and projects on the back burner or give them up altogether because this career can be highly intimidating and competitive. So mm -hmm. what is your idea of quote unquote success? Again, I'm really in a great position because for me, the idea of success, at least right now, is just to be able to keep doing this. Um, I take a small hit usually on each issue, lose, you know, lose a couple hundred dollars to make most of my money back from Kickstarter. And that is sustainable to me because I have a good day job. Um, but even when I started, when I wasn't working, it was basically like, I know I can afford to pay a couple hundred dollars to make issues of a comic book as my hobby. Um, but if it was the full cost, then I would have to stop. So for me, success is to be able to keep doing it by 
expanding my audience so I don't have to rely on friends for major donations um, and continue to put out something that people want to read, which knock wood, I'm still doing. Um, mm. Once I achieve that, I'm sure I'll set a new goal of, you know, I, I would love eventually to not have to do Kickstarters, like to, to have an issue come out and have people pay cover price and be able to make the comic. Uh, that would be great. That's that's probably a ways off, um, but it, that would be the next tier for me. Uh -huh. I'm not really planning to become a superstar. If it happens, I would probably be excited after the fact. I would probably be really stressed out while it was happening. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, it's a lot of work, even just what I'm doing. But I also think if that were to start to happen, I would probably pursue it because what an opportunity yeah um, so yeah there's a wide variety of things and for somebody who wants to do it as their day job i think that they would have to enjoy either the actual creation of the art in terms of an artist or the actual writing process as a writer whatever that um, entails as opposed to specifically looking for the end product um, mm -hmm. Whereas for me, I want to tell these stories in particular. I'm not, uh, I'm not really looking to like get a daredevil writing gig or something like that. Like, I don't care about writing Green Lantern or whoever. Um, certainly if they came to me and they're like, we love what you're doing and we want you to do dystopian Green Lantern, here you go. I'd be like, okay, well, I'd do that. But it's not really a goal of mine. Um, I want to tell the stories. So having it be my whole job would be a ways off and a lot of things would have to go really right for that to happen and for me to be excited about that path. Um, I think the way that I wanna do things is not really a sustainable job. Um, it would be very difficult for me to afford healthcare and rent and food while making this independent comic. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm sure Moose likes to eat, so you got to feed Moose, right? Yeah, well, she gets fed first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Because um, we have uh, stray cats that we feed, and if I don't, we don't feed those cats first thing in the morning, they will follow us. My mom's like, she, the cat followed me in my car when I went across the street. I went to the bank, and the cat followed me to the bank. I'm like, you can't follow me to the bank. So yeah, they have to be fed first. Yeah. Uh, but um, there are people who are who are doing it and people who are doing it independently. Renzo, mm -hmm. is his job is to make comics. That's what he does. Mm -hmm. uh, he lives in Argentina, so he's a little bit lower cost of living. But, you know, he gets he gets money from me. He gets money from his Patreon. Um, he has a couple of comics with Image that have been published in the past. So, you know, he, he is doing it as a professional. Um, as far as I can tell, he really likes working on Robo. But I'm sure if if the right thing came along, he would probably let me know, like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta move on. And I wouldn't begrudge him that. That's cool. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on about Robo issues one, two, four, or the series as a whole that I may have missed? Sure, I can, I can uh, talk about that a little bit. We actually never got to uh, talking about what's gonna happen in four. So um, Robo number four is, it's, uh, I kind of, I do a little bait and switch. There's a cliffhanger at the end of three and I don't go right into it in four. Um, 
which as a, as a consumer of media, I always hate it when they do that, but I think it's going to be gratifying for people. Um, so we get a little bit of an idea of, um, how things got to be the way they are, not necessarily the world building aspect, because we did talk about that, but, um, just the situation that Charles and, uh, the character introduced in Robo number three are in, uh, gets a little context and it's going to be an important setup for what happens in Robo number five, which is kind of the, the denouement, the, the big fight scene, the, you know, the, 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 uh, catharsis mm-hmm. in some ways. So it's going to be a six issue arc and I am stressing myself out trying to stick the landing on this six issue but uh at least everything that's going on up to five i'm really excited about i cannot wait to put out five um there's some really awesome art that's coming and uh and then after six i'm gonna do a trade paperback so people who haven't caught up can get all six issues in one that's that's another thing for me to look forward to that'll be a big milestone for me and uh that's not going to be the end of the story because as i said i did not pre-plan and then make the whole ending uh but also i just want to keep doing it and Um, uh so there's there's more of the story that i want to tell after that that is not finished and i can't even hint about it because it is a mess Um, well, is there anything that you want to share about the Kickstarter? Uh, maybe rewards for potential backers? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the Kickstarter is going live now or is going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already showed you the three actual issues. You can get them physical or digital, but there are stickers like this cool reflective uh, Robo logo sticker mm-hmm. and this one from Renzo. Uh, which is just a really neat, like colored robo pose. Those came out in the last Kickstarter. So I'll have new ones as well for this, but you can also get those old ones. The highest tier can get original artwork. This is the actual page uh, from robo number three. Um, and then there's behind the scenes access for robo number five. If you choose to get that, uh, there are new Chicago postcards, which uh, Phil and I put together for the first Kickstarter is still available. It's kind of cool, like riffs on old pieces of art. We've got like an American Gothic one, uh, the famous scene of the construction workers working on the, um, the triangle, the Flatiron building in New York where they're eating lunch up on the girder. That one's uh-huh. in there. Uh, the kind of classic welcome to the area and then the scenes from the city are in the letters. There's a bunch of cool stuff like that. Um, and I mean, it's, it's about the comics. So the, the physical issues, I, I think, are the best way to read it. You had talked about um, getting a little bit lost in the details, and I mm-hmm. definitely know that can be an issue in print. I don't have that issue as much. There's something about the way light reflects at the page. My eyes just see it better. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because I read it on the screen. So maybe right. I had to get up on it to read it. But when you, like, I, I agree. When you get the physical copy of it and you really, like, get it in your hands and the gloss from it, it, it mm-hmm. something about having it in your hands is just completely different than having it on the screen. That first day, when the first copies of Robo Number 1 arrived, it's not like completely indescribable, but I opened that and I pulled the first one out and I was like, oh man, this is so cool. 
and it looks so much better because mm -hmm. I had been looking at that art for months already. And I was like, wow, this is just beautiful now. So uh, physical copies, if, if you want to go that route, are a great option. Um, also, Robo number one is free to read right now on Global Comics. I had meant to turn it off yesterday, but I forgot. So I'm just going to leave it up for the rest of the weekend. So um, people can check that out. I don't know if the podcast will be out in time for that, but um, I don't know. If you, if you listen to the podcast and you're still not sure that you want to read it, hit me up on Twitter and I'll, I'll get you a link for the first issue. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it'll be up in time. So, so yeah, hit, hit Jesse up for a copy because by the time you're hearing this, it's going to be too late. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've got a lot of stuff going on. The Kickstarter is almost funded. I think we are $86 away right now. Um, so hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, we will be funded, which means you definitely will get your comics. Um, and then if you miss this out, if you just don't like Kickstarter, uh, I'm hoping to do some conventions this year. So somewhere around the Southeast, Charlotte, maybe uh, Raleigh, uh, maybe Georgia, like I'm going to do a convention. So I'll put those out on my Twitter and I'll talk about them and you can come and look at the issues in person and decide for yourself then. All right. Well, again, I want to thank the creator and writer of the comic series Robo, Jesse Kepler, here to promote his upcoming fourth issue currently on Kickstarter. I highly recommend our listeners to give Jesse's Kickstarter a look, share, and back if they can. All of Jesse's and Moosecat Comics socials and website will be listed in this episode's details alongside the Kickstarter link. Again, I am Chaos Garner, and you have been listening to the Solo Nerdbook Podcast. Thank you.